Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2016. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org slash podcasts. There's no sense in which Paul wants to take election and hide it in the closet and not talk about it. I've seen churches that hold to election but never want to talk about it. They, they believe election, but it's like a secret doctrine that you only get told after you've joined the church and been a member for five years, and finally we let you in on the secret. Doctrine election is a biblical doctrine, and if it's a biblical doctrine, it's a good doctrine. The fact that it exists in Romans like this is a reassurance that it's not something that is negative and problematic. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, it's not, and it doesn't mean there aren't residual challenges in understanding it. Of course there are, but I think it's something to be embraced. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible, sponsored by Crossway. I'm Nancy Guthrie, and this is the conversation that helps us learn how to better teach through books of the Bible and to improve our skills in this calling that we've been called to, not only to take in God's word, but to teach it to others. This is the second part of a two-part conversation with Dr. Michael Kruger, who is helping us teach through the book of Romans. Dr. Kruger is president and the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm sitting here with him in the offices of RTS in Charlotte. So, Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for helping us learn how to teach the Bible. Oh, it's been great fun. Glad to be with you again. In our first, the first part of this conversation, we worked our way through Romans chapters 1 through 7, and we saw in chapter 1 the argument that Paul was beginning to build. First, telling us about the wrath of God that is being poured out against sin in this world. And then he convinced his audience that they were actually the objects of that wrath, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then we came to that glorious verse you pointed out in chapter 3, verse 21, that changes everything. Mm -hmm. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he began to work out how this alien righteousness, this righteousness from God, actually gets applied to our account so that we are justified. We're actually counted righteous in the presence of God. And we who were once enemies now have peace with God, he tells us in chapter 5. Then when we got to chapter 6, we talked about how it was as if Paul, like a good teacher, is anticipating objections to what he's saying. So in chapter 6, he anticipated the objection that maybe now because of this righteousness that comes to me as a gift, I can live however I want. And then the objection in chapter 7 about, so what does this mean? Why do we even have the law of God? Why do we even need it if I have a righteousness that comes from God? And this brings us to where we're going to begin our conversation in this second part of Romans chapters 8 through 16 to the glorious, beautiful, majestic chapter 8 of the book of Romans. Yeah, I can remember when I was teaching chapter 8 in, in my Bible study here, and I've taught it before, of course, but I can remember how intimidating it is to, to teach a chapter that's so treasured and loved by people. You think, how am I going to do this justice, you know? 
Uh, in some ways, you just want to just read it and sit down. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible, and and uh, and one that people deeply cherish. I've been thinking all the way along the way in our conversation about Romans, there are so many verses that are worthy of memory. Yeah, uh, that they become a part of us. Certainly no more than Romans chapter eight, verse one. What, what good news mm-hmm. that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A fantastic verse. I had a friend of mine in college who actually memorized the entire book of Romans, which I was really impressed by, obviously. But uh, I know others have just memorized Romans 8. For my 50th uh, birthday, yeah. one of our mutual friends, David yeah. Filson, was at my 50th birthday yeah. party. Everybody was supposed to come with a song to perform, uh-huh. but instead David Filson came and he quoted chapter 8 of the book of Romans. It was such a gift to me oh, on that's my great. birthday. It's, like a, it's almost like a performance of it, you know, yes. yeah, an out loud recitation of chapter mm. eight. And, it's such good news. And uh, yeah, so in, in chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation. Paul sort of summarizes um, the, the essence of the gospel, which is you're not going to be condemned. But as he enters into chapter eight, it raises issues of future judgment. Um, you know, it's almost like he anticipates this, this concern in people's minds. Well, are you sure, Paul? I mean, okay, so you're you're saying that, that I, I get a righteous standing before God. About are you sure that I'm not going to be condemned in the end? That when all the dust settles, that that I'll, that I'll still be standing. Is it is it really going to work out? And so, what's interesting about eight is that Paul heads into what you, I don't know what we might call a little bit of an eschatological direction. He, he talks about sort of the big end end picture of it all, uh, the final standing, if you will, before God. And so he talks about future glory and comparing it to our present sufferings and God's full everlasting love. And so it's just a, a chapter, of course, that culminates in the, in the no separation theme. Uh, but woven through in it, though, are a number of other interesting little themes about how you know you're Christian and sonship and Abba Father and all kinds of things. So it's just really a rich chapter. This seems to me to be a challenging chapter for a teacher. Maybe you've got 30 45 minutes you're going to teach it. How are you going to choose what you're going to focus on in this passage? I wonder how you broke it up, or what did you make your focus well, when I was, you taught through this? Yeah, so, uh, of course, back to our earlier conversation of doing you know Romans in 16 weeks, you'd have to do this all in one week. I, I, I broke this into three parts. Mm-hmm. So I Well, maybe those could in, be yeah. our three points. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, the first part is obvious, verses 1 through 11, which is the spirit-flesh dichotomy. Um, and uh, Paul lays out the walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. So he he begins to here dabble a little bit in practical application, and this is why uh, some scholars divide up these chapters as under the heading of sanctification. So they they, they think that Paul, in ch- starting in chapter six through eight, is dealing with the issue of sanctification, and I think there's a sense in which that's true. But I like to lump, as I've said before, all of six through eleven under the broader heading of objections, and one of those has to do with this, but. 1 through 11 here really does lay out the um, the issue of walking with the flesh and walking with the spirit, and, and those are very practical things. So much of Romans up to this point has been so theological, and certainly there's incredible theology here in chapter mm-hmm. 8, but it's also one of the most comforting yeah, yeah. chapters mm-hmm. in the Bible, wouldn't it be, um, to know that when we don't know how to pray that the spirit is interceding for us um 
that there is a new creation coming, that we're groaning in this mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. but the Spirit is helping us, and we do have this confidence. I just wonder, uh, maybe a way to approach this chapter is to think about the comforts of the gospel that yeah. are in this chapter yeah. that would be deeply encouraging mm-hmm. to those we are teaching what would some of those things be in this chapter? Yeah, you, you, Paul. Paul really puts on his pastoral hat here uh, when you read this chapter. You know, you could imagine that in the earlier chapters, Paul put on his lawyer hat, okay, and he's he's making his case and he's legally crossing every T and dotting every I. Here, it's almost like he comes to the to the reader and puts his arm around the reader, and in essence, says it's going to be okay. Um, and I know you're struggling with things, but but here's some comfort for you. And the comfort is multifaceted. I mean, obviously, one of the fundamental comforts here is the issue of, am I really a child of God? Um, am I really part of uh, God's family? Does he really hear my prayers? Um, and so when you look at really 12 through 17 here, we come to the very uh, important passage about Paul affirming the spirit of adoption within us and saying, look, you know, you cries, Abba, Father. It bears witness to us. You, you can have that comfort. So again, Paul's putting his arm around there and saying, you're really a child of God. Um, you, need to, you need to just take comfort in the fact that you have the spirit at work within you. A, a second comfort here has to do with the sufferings we endure. Um, you, know, you and I were talking even last night uh, about the, the, the fact that maybe in the reform world we lack a theology of suffering. Um, we have a theology of sin, but maybe a theology of suffering isn't so rich. But Paul has one here. Uh, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. And he talks about living in a fallen world, a world that's groaning, a world that's waiting for redemption. It's almost like Paul's coming to the reader and saying, I know what it's like to live in the fallen world you're in. I know that, that it's painful. I know that it's hard. But you need to realize something, and here's my comfort for you, is that God is going to change that world. He's going to redeem it. He's going to turn it around. He's going to hit the reset button and make it new. Um, so this is why I said a moment ago there's an eschatological feel here to Paul. And so he, 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 he talks about here a very important theological truth, which is what's broken about the world isn't just what people do. It's not just the actions aren't working right. But the entire world as a created order is off kilter. It's, it's almost like off its axis. So it's the physical creation, too, that's broken. It's the... The world as an as an entirety that's 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 broken. This is why people suffer. Sometimes you don't suffer just because someone sins against you. Sometimes you suffer because you live in a fallen world. And so Paul here gives us great comfort and hope here uh, about how we're going to be renewed. We're going to have new bodies. There's going to be a new world made, and that's just really fundamental. You know, I think one thing that's very significant for us when we teach this chapter is to recognize that many people were teaching are like I was for most of my life. So much of evangelicalism, uh, the Christian life tends to be mostly about life here, but focused on going to heaven when you die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the story of what God's doing in the world in many ways for many evangelical believers stops right there. Yes. And so I think we could anticipate that many of the people we're teaching, their focus has always been pretty much on have faith in God now so that you can go to heaven and be with him forever when you die. Right. And But when we get to Romans chapter 8, we realize that's not the whole story of what God is doing in the world. And how much would it help people if they understood? I, I just think, I don't know how I ever read this and understood it at all for most of my life. I, I assume I just skipped over it. Um, so what is Paul telling us here that... Uh, 
a, a Christianity that we can present and teach to people when we're teaching through this. That's much more than just going to heaven when we die. Yeah, I think what what that that particular version of the Christian life, as you said, is so popular and so common. It's the you know it's float on a cloud, playing a harp sort of view of the of the future. But that's never been the biblical view. The biblical view is that one day heaven and earth will collapse together. There'll be a renewed uh, a renewed world where God will remake it and refashion it and reshape it, and and and, and the creation itself will be set right. Um, and so there's a sense in which the ultimate goal is in heaven. Uh, we, we read in the book of Revelation that even when you get to heaven, you're still waiting for something. Even the saints in heaven are still longing for something. Um, and uh, what are they longing for? The, 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 what's, what's theologically called the consummation. And what Paul is talking about here is, is, is the consummation. Consummation is a new heavens and a new earth, a resurrected body, um, a God setting all things right in the final judgment. Um, this is the, the end game when we will dwell with him face to face, and there will be a, a a physical creation that we we live in with those new resurrected bodies, and that is really what our hope is. And what I love about what Paul's doing here is he's reminding us that that's our hope. He even talks about the the redemption of our bodies here, um, and he doesn't mean get rid of your bodies. That'd be dying and go to heaven. What he means is you're going to get a new body someday, and that just puts a different take on things. And in early Christianity, you have to understand that this would have been revolutionary because in the in the world of the Greco Roman world, the idea of of a physical eternity or a physical creation was was foreign to most people's thinkers. This is what Gnosticism objected so much to uh, uh, in regards to Orthodox Christianity. Or, you know, Gnosticism didn't think you would ever get a resurrected body. Why would you want that? Um, why would you want a new body? Salvation is being set free from your body. Um, and so Christianity is is against the flow of most ideas of eternity in this way. What's Paul telling us here in Romans eight twenty eight? Well, yeah, this is the consummate uh, verse of comfort. It's it's a a clear affirmation of God's sovereignty over all things. Um, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, There's a sense in which, you know, again, the the concept here is is Paul comforting people. And he's saying, I know you're in a world of suffering and difficulty and problems. It's going to be renewed. But in the meantime, you need to know that all the things that are happening to you have an ultimate purpose for the glory of God, and that he's going to work it all for good. Now, that doesn't answer every question. It doesn't solve every problem. But there's a grand confidence there uh, that, 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 that God is for us and that he's working all things unto an end that benefit us. And so that's the, that's the great uh, sort of castle, strong castle we live in is that, is that hope. Verse 29 is key too. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. those whom he justified, he glorified. This is the famous, what's called the ordo salutis. It's it's a very interesting way that Paul lays out the order of salvation, which is where it begins and where it ends. Um, And there's a sense in which the beginning is the calling and the end is the glorifying. And so again, it's an eschatological Stop right there. Because we can think about salvation as being a very singular experience. Many of us were brought up to think about the day we were saved. Correct. But you're saying there are, that uh, salvation is maybe not as simplistic. Is that a right word to use? Or that there are elements, different elements to it? Yeah, so the way I would say it is, is that, is that I think God, of course, and we all would agree with this, does enter in the world and save people in concrete time and space. But that the, the but that understanding the implications of that go well beyond the 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 conversion experience. In other words, God has more for us in the Christian life than just being quote unquote saved. Um, and the list here is so phenomenal because Paul takes that salvation moment and he goes back and forward. 
So he, he says, well, look, look back and you realize that when you got to the point of justification, there's many things that preceded that, right? Um, I predestined you and I called you. And so you understand a little bit of how you got there. And it's not because you're so smart or so great. But then also Paul takes it forward and say, well, don't just stop with conversion or justification. You're also going to be adopted and you're also going to be sanctified. You're also going to be glorified. And so he, 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 there's so much more in the Christian life than just being saved. And I think this is key. It's not like you want to have less than that. But Paul makes it clear that there's a lot more than that. When we get to the very end of chapter 8, what a glorious thing. I, I don't know how anybody could ever read this flatly yeah, or or heaven help us from teaching it flatly or too doctrinally. We can be so focused on practical. Here's what you've got to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, we get to the end of Romans chapter 8 here, and it should just lead us to adoring Christ, a mm-hmm. sense of celebration of our security in Christ. That's right. I mean, I I think sometimes Christianity for people is an idea or a concept or a practice, but ultimately it goes back to, uh, uh, you know, you're ultimately serving a a person. And so when we talk about preaching Christ, there's lots of ways to preach Christ, by the way, but but, but I like what you said. There's a sense in which you want to call your your congregation towards greater affection for, for Christ, greater adoration for Christ, greater uh, love for him, that they find him to be wonderful and beautiful. And when you look at this last part of Romans 8, how do you not find that to be true of him? Because there's so much here about our security. And when you look at verse 31, this is Paul's rhetorical questions again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, there's probably still people out there thinking, well, am I sure God's for me? Am I, am I really convinced that he is? Maybe... You know, there's a, there's a lot of people who labor in life with the pull the rug out from under me view of God, that God is just waiting to hammer me. He's, he's waiting to ruin me, uh, take away everything good from me, that, that, that everything that good happens to me is just set me up for the fall kind of attitude. And people live that way. And Paul's, again, on a comfort level, so I know he's for you. And he has some airtight logical arguments in this section that prove it. I mean, if he gave you a son, would he withhold other things from you? I mean, are you kidding me? He gave you the greatest thing. The very the son of the living God, the, the, the pinnacle of all creation he gave for you. Why would he withhold other things? Um, and then he, another question, who's going to bring a charge against God as, God's elect? Well, Christ was the one who was raised for you and interceding for you. And if Christ is interceding for you, what charge is going to stick? So he just goes through uh, objection after objection here um, uh, of people who are worried that God is going to be in the end against them. And then, of course, it culminates in the no separation here. I, Paul says, look, nothing's going to separate us from God, height nor depth. Uh, angels or rulers, present or future, no powers nor anything is going to separate us in Christ. So it is it is arguably uh, one of the very best chapters in, in, in all of the Book of Romans. And I have to recommend Derek Thomas's book here. Um, uh, uh, he's got a book that's entitled The Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home, and I believe the entire book is, is devoted to an exposition of just Romans 8. Another great book that's just an exposition of Romans 8 is by Ray Ortland Jr., a book called Supernatural Living. Oh, very good, that, yes. That book so really a couple impacted good books me. Out there. Exactly. Yeah. All right, now we get to a big objection. Oh, and, yeah, here and, we go. You know, this is, for us as teachers, we in some ways we'd like to skip Mm-hmm. Perhaps Romans nine through eleven, um, especially if we know that we're teaching people who resist any sense of God choosing, and uh, that there are people whom God has not chosen for salvation. Yeah. So, 
would you give us some instruction and maybe also some encouragement? Why do we want to dive in and and teach this? What do we hope happens as we dive in? First of all, trying to understand for ourselves chapters 9 through 11, but then to give it out, give us some courage for teaching Yeah, this is tough. I mean, you know, the honest truth is, I mean, if you're teaching Romans, 9 through 11 are tricky, and they're exegetically tricky, theologically tricky. You're going to get your objections from people when you teach this section. Uh, but here's a few thoughts for you on, on what I think about when I, when I teach through Romans 9 through 11. First of all, you have to realize that Romans 9 through 11 is not a sidebar for Paul. In other words, it's not like he lost track of his line of thought and just got diverted. We tend to think of election as to attack on here. Uh, when you understand his argument, there's no tack on here. This is absolutely consistent with the flow of Romans and with the flow of his point. And when you understand Romans 9 through 11, it actually affirms his own point all along, which is that salvation is all of God. The idea of salvation by grace that he's just laid out in the prior chapters naturally leads one to election. Paul does not present election as a problem. Um, We think it is. Yeah, we we think it's a problem. Actually, here's the funny thing. Paul actually presents election as the solution to another problem. People think of election as, a, as, as the problem to be solved, but actually Paul thinks of election as something that's solving another problem. And that other problem is, whatever. why are Israelites not coming to Christ? Um, why is it that my countrymen aren't being saved? Uh, or to put it more broadly, the, the question Paul's actually answering in Romans 9 is, why are some people saved and not others? That's the fundamental question. Um, I'm and, sure that people were teaching. A lot of them have yeah, that question. Think about that question for a moment. Everybody that's listening to this this uh, podcast and everyone that's going to be teaching the Book of Romans, your congregation and your your audience is thinking. Now, why is it that some are saved and not others? I mean, that's a pretty fundamental question to ask, right? When all the dust settles, what's the reason that Sally is saved and not Susie? What's the reason John is saved and not Jordan or whatever it happens to be? I mean, there has to be some answer to that, and so that's the question. And so when you look at that conundrum, it, it, it was poignant for Paul just because it was it was, it was pertinent to why his brethren in the nation of Israel were being saved, but you can apply it to anybody. But here's the interesting thing. Paul says that's a conundrum, and here's the answer. The answer is election. And so election isn't the problem. Election's the solution in Paul's mind, and I think that's a really important framing of what we're getting ready to do here in Romans 9. You mentioned that Paul didn't see election as a problem, but the solution He's not embarrassed by it, but we discover at the end of chapter 11, that's what gives way to worship for him. It's That makes him deeply happy. He is amazed at the beauty and the wonder of God's election, or specifically God's willingness to show mercy to sinners Mm -hmm. who don't deserve it. Yeah, the, the the crescendo, the doxology at the end of eleven is 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 fabulous, and it's so fitting um, for the topic. Think about how complicated the mind of God is, and and how unsearchable His ways. And election captures that. Um, and then Paul says, "Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable His judgments! How inscrutable His ways!" And He gives him praise for it. And so, this is, of course, the point we've been trying to make, which is that. When you realize that salvation is really all of God, when you realize that grace means that, yes, not only did are you saved not according to works, but the fact that you're saved at all and not another person is because of God's initiation and mercy and election, that, that's what elicits praise. That's when doxologies erupt. And there's a sense in which Paul wants you to know at the end of the day it's all of God. And so 
when we ask the question, why is one person saved on others? It's interesting. There's there's people who who give a man part of that, who answer that on the man side of the equation, and then Paul says, no, it's all on the God side of the equation. If you want to know why someone is saved, not others, it ultimately ends up being in the hands of God. And if it's in the hands of God, then when we praise Him for salvation, it's it's all Him. There's no meeting us halfway. He saved us fully and totally. Perhaps we as teachers were were fearful, perhaps, of some of the pushback we're going to get about this. Yes. We're fearful about being equipped to answer the questions about it. But perhaps the end of chapter 11, one impact that sh- should have on us is that if we're really studying and understanding this, it should lead us to this place of worship, should it not? Just not not apologizing for God, yes. but being willing to lead our people into celebrating the work of God in the world? Absolutely. In other words, I think the doctrine of election not only was not a problem for Paul, it was not an embarrassment for Paul, and it was a, it was a core part of understanding our salvation for Paul in a, in a way that leads us to many other fruits. And so understanding election is going to have a lot of a lot of benefit a lot of fruit one of those is is a is a recognition of praise and glory to god fully for salvation a a posture of doxology that god gets all the credit here's the other thing election leads to is is a sense of security in in what god has done a, a positive sense that if it's in the hands of god it can't be rattled or shaken if it's in my hands it can be um and so there's there's no sense in which paul wants to take election and hide it in the closet and not talk about it and this is where i I would just challenge the listeners out there and, and churches in general that, look, you know, I've seen churches that hold to election but never want to talk about it. They, they believe election, but it's like a secret doctrine that you only get told after you've joined the church and been a member for five years, and finally we let you in on the secret. You know, I'm like, well, no, that's not, you know, doctrine and election is a biblical doctrine. And if it's a biblical doctrine, it's a good doctrine. If it's a good doctrine, it has good purposes. The fact that it exists in Romans like this is a reassurance that it's not problematic. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, it's not, and it doesn't mean there aren't residual challenges in understanding it. Of course there are, but I think it's something to be embraced, and that's an important point. Well, I hear you saying it as teachers to see this section as an opportunity Absolutely. to teach something beautiful yeah. rather than fearfully teach something that we're embarrassed and about. apologizing the whole way through. Uh, and you know, if someone wants to see how I handled this in, my, in the video series, they can go and look. I try to, you know, obviously respect other views, but you just got to lay it out there. This is what the Bible teaches. In the first part of our conversation, you talked about how Paul anticipates the objections Uh of his listeners throughout the book of Romans. I would think this is a section where we as teachers, we want to be sure that we anticipate objections Mm -hmm. and walk in ready to the best of our ability to deal with them. That's right. And one of the great things about the way Paul unfolds his argument in Romans 9 is he actually anticipates objections to the doctrine of election. Uh, and the funny thing about him is, that, again, he's like reading your mind. It's like, well, Paul, it's like that's exactly the objections people raise, and he anticipated them. But when people, it's always amazing to me that people have never even read Romans raise these objections. I'm like, did you know that you're raising the very objection that Paul brought up? It's an amazing thing. Um, and so, yes, uh, you've got to be ready as a teacher to uh, deal with the uh, objections that arise, you know, gently but firmly and clearly. And, uh, you know, we not everyone's going to agree. But, uh, you know, our job as teachers is just to lay forth what the, what the Bible teaches. Then we come to chapter 12. This is a big turn, it is, is it turn. not, in mm-hmm. the book of Romans? And so it's a turn for us as teachers. Some things are going to change about uh, our approach and emphasis here. Help us understand this last big section and give us some handles on how to teach through Romans chapter 12 through 15. Yeah, I think fundamentally the existence of 12 through 15 alone is noteworthy. 
And this, I think, teachers need to point out. The idea that Paul thinks that salvation by grace alone and through faith alone means that obedience doesn't matter, that idea is completely undercut by the fact that chapters 12 through 15 exist. In other words, he wrote a letter. If you, if you think that's the meaning of his first 11 chapters, you've missed the point, because then Paul goes in and says, and live this way and not that way. Do this and don't do that. And so he, he puts a premium on obedience here, and he wants to teach you how to live the Christian life. He wants to guide you through some complexities on life together and life in the world. And so Paul's very practical here and very pastoral. And so what I love about it is, is that in his mind, there's no contradiction between uh, a, a chapter that has to do with, with, with holiness and a robust embracement of grace. And so seeing grace and holiness as a tandem is really, really important to get. And so aside from the specifics that I'm sure we'll get into in a second here in 12 through 15, I would just encourage the teachers to think about just the mere existence of these chapters highlights a very important theological point, which is holiness matters, obedience matters, and that there is a sense in which we want to call our congregation to respond to the first 11 chapters by what we find in the, in the last chapters. From 12 to 15, uh, how did you divide it out? Chapter 12, at a very high level, is sort of, you know, living with one another, living in the body, you know, all, all, the, all the sort of, you know, complexities of just having to, to get along with other people. And so Paul talks about the gifts in the body. Uh, in verses 3 through 8, and how those feed the body. And then he just talks about simple things like love one another with brotherly affection, uh, you know, rejoice with one another, show hospitality, and so on. And so there's a sense in which life in the body is, at least at a high level, a large, large part of what chapter 12 is about. Chapter 13 is life in the world. You know, uh, well, how do you, how do you deal with living in a hostile world, in a, in a government that, that's very much not Christian? And what, how do we navigate these things? And so he talks about, very importantly here, relating to the, to the government around you and, and how to interact with the laws and the people who are authorities over you. And obviously that's very relevant for the situation of the Romans. And here's where we would go back to the, the, the first century situation. Um, you know, if Paul's asking them to submit to a very wicked Roman government, then surely we can submit to our not-as-wicked uh, U.S. government, for at least those who are hearing this in America. And so there's a, a great challenge there. And then in chapter 14, Paul goes into a very important discussion of judging. Um, and I tell people this is one of the most important chapters to get clarification about what it means to judge and what it doesn't mean to judge. Uh, and Paul here is dealing with an issue where uh, Christians are judging each other over over matters that are not uh, clearly sin. In other words, a weaker brother thinks something that is sin that isn't, and Paul is trying to deal with how to handle that sort of situation. Um, it really has to do with, with, with certain meat that some are eating and some aren't. It could be meat sacrificed to idols. It may not be. There's some dispute about that. But this is a great chapter for a teacher to talk about what it really means to judge and what it doesn't mean to judge. And that's, what does that's, it mean to judge? Yes. So in Paul's discussion here... Um, He's only dealing with issues that that are uh, are an issue that someone thinks is sin but really isn't. So, in other words, if someone says, "Oh, you eat that meat, sacrifice to idols, you shouldn't do that; it's a sin," Paul's saying, "Well, it's not actually a sin, but you want to work in such a way uh, to, to 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 deal with that weaker brother." So, the person judging in that instance for Paul is the weaker brother. The weaker brother is telling someone you're sinning when they're really not. Okay, so in this instance, judging is actually telling someone they're sinning when they're not sinning. Um, when 
our culture uses the term judge. Yeah. That's not what they mean. What do when they mean? When our culture mean? uses the term judge, they mean you can never tell someone they're wrong. You can never tell someone they're, they're doing anything that's, that's violating God's law. That's exactly not what Paul means here. Paul's very plainly able to tell people that they're sinning and they're violating God's law. He's saying, though, what if someone's doing something that you just happen to personally not prefer? And then you say that it's sin. Well, that's, that's being judgmental. You're, you're using a man-made law as if it were God's. And that's really the definition of judging in Paul's mind here. And so Romans 14 uh, is really important to balance out that perspective that's so common in our culture. So people will often say Christians aren't supposed to judge. Mm-hmm. Would you say that statement is true? Depends on what they mean by it. Uh, if they mean by that Christians aren't supposed to impose their own personal private laws uh, that are not God's laws on on people, then yes. Um, but if they mean by that Christians can't uphold God's laws or can't declare God's laws true or can't declare that someone's violated God's law, then that's not something that we would affirm. That's going to be very significant for people that we're teaching because anybody who's on Facebook <laughs> oh, knows, yes. right, that Absolutely. somebody, when an issue comes up, is going to be, well, you're not, who are you to judge? Yes, and this is why I would encourage the teachers to spend some time on Romans 14 because it's such a corrective uh, to what we do, and it's such a misunderstanding. that the, the way we use the term judge is this very, very sad. And, and if you were to pluck one of these verses out of context in Romans 14, you would not know that what Paul is dealing with are, are matters of indifference. And I think that's one of the key things to note. Then we come to uh, chapters 15 and 16, and he's bringing things uh, to a close. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've heard that many sermons on chapters 15 and 16. Does that mean that there's not much there? <laughs> Well, you know, I think some chapters stand out as, as more profound and, and more impactful than others, and I don't think there's anything inappropriate about that. Uh, it doesn't mean 15 is less inspired, of course, uh, but in terms of the, the profundity and impact, I think it is, is arguably one of the least known chapters in the whole book of Romans. Um, I would say the least known chapters in Romans are going to be probably chapter 2 and chapter 15. Uh, well, chapter 16, too, in some ways. Uh, but Paul in this chapter lays out again the Jew-Gentile one body issue and supports it from the Old Testament um, and refers again to himself as a minister of the Gentiles. But then at the back half of 15, what I like what Paul does here is he uh, talks about his own private itinerary, his own, his own travel plans. And here's where I want to encourage uh, the teachers of Romans to not skip this. Um, I find that you learn a tremendous amount about Paul at the back end of his letters when he discusses his own travel plans. You learn about where his heart is. You learn about the way he operates. You learn about what he what he's passionate about. And what you realize here in the back half of Romans 15 is that Paul is a very restless fellow. Um, he is a he is a guy that that can't sit still for God. He's always on the move. For God, he is—he's what I call—he's uh, a person that, that I think has what you might call a holy restlessness. He's spiritually fidgety, and you can get that because he's like, "Look, I, I'm off to this place, and then I'm off to that place, and I can't wait to see you there, and then I'm going to go do this." And Paul is always pushing the ball down the field. And I think there's a, a, just a great uh, picture here of Paul as a missionary. And so, what you find here in 15, interestingly, is that Paul uses all these other examples in Romans—you know, Abraham and David and so on. And then sort of accidentally, if you will, in Romans 15, Paul himself becomes a bit of the example. Not because he wants to be, but because he just lays out his own vision for ministry and what he's busy doing and how he's helping the church in Jerusalem and Macedonia. And you get a picture of what a missionary is. And it's just a, a tremendously encouraging passage. 
Chapter 16 begins, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant in the church. Help us understand Phoebe and her place Mm -hmm. in the book of Romans. So from what we can tell, Phoebe was the letter carrier for Romans. Um, This is part of the reason why we put uh, Paul in Corinth when he's writing the the book of Romans, because Concrea, where Phoebe's from, is a port city in in, in Corinth. And so apparently Phoebe was uh, a member of the church there. and in, in, in probably fairly prominent in her ministry there. And Paul uh, uses her to deliver the letter to the church at Rome. And so he says, basically, I commend you to our sister Phoebe because she is hand-delivering Paul's letter to the Roman church. And so she plays a very critical role in service of Paul. Do we anticipate she got there? Was she the one who read it out loud? Did she explain it? Was she in a teaching kind of role, having carried this letter? Uh, I don't think there's any reason to think that, that she was in any, in any teaching role here. I think we have all evidence throughout the New Testament of a variety of types of letter carriers, people who would transmit these letters, people that Paul trusts and that are faithful and important leaders, but not necessarily teachers um, or, or, or preachers. And I think what would have happened when she arrived in Rome, that she Paul is saying, you know, receive her as my emissary in essence and give her all due respect in that regard. But I don't necessarily think she would have read it out loud, but there's a variety of studies on letter carriers in the ancient world, and they would have. there's different opinions about what they did and didn't do. So we've come to the end of the book of Romans, and of course he ends in doxology, which seems appropriate. And even those last couple of verses give us a sense of Paul's heartbeat and for why he has written this letter. He wants the good news of the gospel to be known to all nations and to bring about the obedience of faith. And of course, he ends on a note of bringing glory to God. That seems fitting for Paul, doesn't it? It does. It's a great doxology at the end. Obviously, there's other doxologies in Romans. Um, You know, chapter 16 is one of those uh, chapters, unfortunately, that people in some ways like 15 skip over. And, And and the doxology is the fitting ending of it, but there's so many things I would encourage our listeners to, to glean from the personal greetings that Paul offers here. Uh, we learn a lot about the church at Rome, a lot of the specifics about who was there and what they were doing. Uh, I point out the fact that, that, that many of the people that Paul commends in his greetings at the end of Romans 16 are women. And I think that's worth noting that, the, that in early Christianity, women played a very vital role. Uh, in ministry, they were busy serving Christ, serving the church, doing ministry. Was that countercultural in that I, In world? many ways, it was. In fact, we know in early Christianity that women flocked to Christianity in droves. It was very popular amongst women. In fact, from statistical analysis we can get, it was almost two to one that women were attracted to Christianity over men. And there's a sense in which they found it to be a very positive, safe place to serve God in, and and they were busy serving God there in all kinds of uh, different ways. And so I think it's just a great reminder uh, that that ministry isn't just done by apostles. It's not just done by pastors, but it's the sort of average person in the pew that's doing the work, and Paul is commending them over and over again. And I think the, the nice thing about the end of Romans then is that it it, it, it reminds us that, that, that ministry happens in just the lives of real people. Uh, in the church, you don't have to be a superhero to do ministry. And I think this this is what the, what the what the personal greetings can tell us that people often miss. And I think that's just a treasure. I would encourage teachers listening to this that don't skip over that. Go through and mine it for all that's there. So you spent two years, over forty two sessions, mm-hmm. teaching through the Book of Romans. We might not spend quite that many, and yet we 
will invest a great deal of ourselves in understanding and giving out and being in relationship with the people we're teaching. Mm -hmm. What would be a fitting goal or hope of the impact the teaching of the book of Romans might have on us as the teacher, Mm -hmm. as well as those we're teaching? Well, that's a great question. There's so many implications of Romans that that I've seen in this Bible study I taught over the last two years. Um, I think one goal would that some will come to Christ. I think some people hear this and they're not Christians and they'll come to Christ. Others will, for the first time, get the gospel in a very profound way that leads them to praise God. One other thing I saw this Bible study doing in Romans is it knits Christians together. Um, I've seen it bind communities together tight. It's it's a it's it's a sense in which you, you you rally around that core message together as a community, and this is why I think the Bible's taught in community. It's not taught in an isolationist way. And I think you, one goal for Romans when you teach it is that you want to see your your community knit around this book and around the message in it. Um, you know, some people are going to uh, result in you know repentance and, and 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 renewed holiness in a book like this. But at the end of the day, I think the greatest goal for Romans is going to be the ending of the book, which is. Uh, Glory forever to Jesus Christ. There's got to be praise and doxology is the end game of, of a book like Romans. There's many of those other applications I mentioned, but in the end, we will have been successful if in hearts and voices people praise Christ with renewed vigor in light of the great truths taught here. Thank you so much for talking through the book of Romans. It's been very helpful to us, been helpful to me personally. I wonder if you would close us this way, Michael, if you would speak directly to teachers, people mm-hmm. who are thinking about teaching the book of Romans, maybe they're actively even now preparing to teach the book of Romans. And I think all good teachers look at God's word and there's a sense of I'm not worthy of this. Uh, how can I ever do justice to these incredible truths? So mm-hmm. would you speak to us a word of instruction and also a word of encouragement as we go to God's word and seek to understand it for ourselves and then begin to figure out how we're going to communicate it rightly to other yeah. people? So a couple things on that note. Uh, first of all, to remind the listener that the power is not in how good a teacher they are, but in the message that this book contains. In other words, don't fret teaching through Romans if you're a teacher because you think, well, I'm not as eloquent as John Piper or whoever happens to be in your head. No, the power of the gospel, remember the very opening line, the power of the gospel is in, is in, is in the message of the gospel. It's in the, it's in the word of God. And so just don't forget that. Just getting the word of God in front of people is what, is what your goal is. You don't have to be the superstar. In fact, sometimes that detracts. Let the, let the gospel be the power of your, of your teaching. And the second thing I would do to encourage people as they enter the book of Romans is to remember that it's, it's actually more simple than you think. Um, it is deep enough, uh, deeper than the deepest ocean, if you want to pl- plunge that deep. But it's also shallow enough for a baby to bathe in. It is the heart and soul of the gospel which a child can embrace. And so as you teach it, yes, there's complexities. Yes, there's nuances and difficult passages. But actually, the message is profoundly simple in the book of Romans. And if you keep that in mind and keep coming back to it, you're going to realize that that it's not this have to have a PhD to understand kind of book. I mean, God didn't give us a book like that. He gave us a book that actually is a lot more simple than we think. And so keep the big picture in mind when you teach. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, including a biblical theological introduction to the New Testament, edited by Dr. Kruger, as well as a couple of books by him, The Canon Revisited, as well as The Heresy of Orthodoxy. If you're leading a group through a study of the Book of Romans, you might want to take a look at... Romans, a 12-week study by Jared Wilson. Really simple study guides for taking a group through this incredible book. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.